0: Good morning. Good morning I'm going to do my thing <laughs> I'm going to remind you about the prayer bowl and the answer to prayer we call the trumpet bowl and then also tomorrow night every month the first Monday of the month we take to pray for souls so if you can come out it'll be 6: 30 to 7: 30 we're just going to spend that hour praying for the Lord to we want to see people amen getting saved we want to see the Lord moving that way in our in the fellowship of what's going on here and he is, and we want to continue to pray for, that he would do that. Also, for the men, just remember that the men's breakaway is on March 9th. That's here. We're, we're, we're going to host that. Uh, so it's many different calvaries that are going to be coming, the men. So with that, would you stand with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read this passage. It's a prophecy that came actually 100 years before crucifixion was ever devised by the Assyrians 700 years before Jesus was crucified so this is a prophecy in Isaiah that the Jews who don't believe in Jesus would like to remove it along with Psalm 22 we'll do Psalm 22 next week so I just want to read this passage uh, pray and ask the Lord to help me communicate his heart to you through his word please so here we are Isaiah 52:13 behold my this is a, this is whole ex Uh, section is called The Sin-Bearing Servant. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. That literally means he was beaten so mercilessly you couldn't recognize him as a human being. And his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been "'told them they shall see, "'and what they had not heard they shall consider.'" Chapter 53, "'Who has believed our report? "'And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? "'For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant "'and as a root out of dry ground. "'He has no form or comeliness, "'and when we see him, "'there is no beauty that we should desire him. "'He is despised and rejected by men, "'a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. "'And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, verse 7, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So again, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off. That means a violent death. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. So, Lord, your word is so incredible. And here we have an account, hundreds of years before it ever happened, of what would happen, because, Lord, from the beginning, you know all things. From the beginning of man's fall, you said the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. That there'd be this Messiah coming to save us from our sin. Just reading this, you, Jesus, you became sin who knew no sin. Spotless Lamb of God. So Lord, we just humble ourselves before you and ask that you give us ears to hear what you're saying and things you're ministering this morning through your word. I pray you'd help me to be able to communicate the things that are on your heart from your word to your people. We look to you, Lord, the author and finisher of our faith. We look to you, the Holy Spirit, as the one who teaches and guides. And please, just draw us to yourself together as a body of Christ this morning under your word. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. You can be seated. A 10-year-old public school boy was finding fifth grade math to be the challenge of his life. His mom and dad did everything and anything to help their son, private tutors, peer assistance, online courses, textbooks, bribes, you name it, nothing worked. Finally, giving up, they enrolled him into a small Catholic school to await another destiny. At the end of the first day of school, the boy walked in with a stern expression on his face and walked right past the parents and went straight to his room and quietly closed the door. For nearly two hours, he toiled away in his room with math books strewn about his desk and the surrounding floor. He only emerged long enough to eat, and after quickly cleaning his plate, he went straight back to his room, closed the door, and worked fervishly at his studies until bedtime. The parents were not sure if they should comment on the boy's extra efforts for fear of him losing this newfound fervor, so they seemingly ignored him. This pattern continued ceaselessly. One day, the first quarter report card came out. Unopened, he dropped the envelope on the family dinner table and went straight to his room. His parents were petrified. What lay inside the envelope? Cautiously, the mother opened the letter, and to her amazement, she saw a bright red A under the subject math. Overjoyed, she and her husband rushed into their son's room, thrilled at the remarkable progress of their young son. Was it the nun that did it? The father asked. The boy only shook his head and said, no. Was it the one tutoring, the peer mentoring? Asked the mother. Again, the boy shrugged, no. No. The textbooks, the teacher, the curriculum, asked the father. Nope, said the son. It was all very clear to me from the very first day of Catholic school. How so, asked the mom. When? Well, when I walked into the lobby and saw that guy they'd nailed to the plus sign, I knew those people meant business. (laughs) (laughs) A humorous humorous story in its own context, but as the old hymn goes, we have a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right. A story of truth and mercy, a story of peace and light. It's the cross. That sin is costly. And Jesus willingly paid the price so that a holy God can forgive our sin past, present, and future, the cross. That the penalty of sin is death and that God, a just judge, can now pardon us and set us free from sin, death, and hell By the grace of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's power unto salvation, would you say amen? It's the cross. So another old hymn we sing is, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Why don't you say the last line when I get to it with me, okay? Bearing shin and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew anew His song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. It's the cross. We're talking, this study in our next one, and maybe even two, we're going to look at the cross, we're going to take communion, and take our, our examine ourselves. So, it, Mark 15, which we look, last week we laid some groundwork, and I'll just summarize, uh, I hope you'll watch that, just some groundwork on the cross. Jesus had a total of six trials, three religious trials, and three civil trials. Beginning in chapter 15, verse 1, starts these civil trials, there are three of them, before Pilate, who then sends him sends Jesus to Herod, then before Herod, who then sends Jesus back to Pilate, and then before Pilate, Jesus is sentenced to death. He's scourged, three hours of darkness, and then he releases his, his spirit and dies. The Son of God died for our sin. The cross of Jesus is one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith. It is at once the greatest tragedy of the ages, and at the same time the most glorious victory on earth as it is in heaven. We should not come to these scenes with a feeling of defeat or sympathy for the sufferer. Again, we looked at this last week. We should walk softly and reverently through these scenes with a heart of thanksgiving to God for providing so great a salvation. The cross is everything to the Christian faith. If there is no cross, there is no Christ. If there is no Christ, there is no Christian. If there is no Christian, there is no Christianity. But now Jesus is risen from the dead the cross. It's everything to the Christian faith. The book of Romans, I would encourage you, if you haven't studied that yet or thought, I would encourage you to study it. Because particularly the first eight chapters talk about this walking in the Spirit, that this, the, the, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. And on and on it goes, culminating in, in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 3, it says, for all I've sinned, and falls short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's the cross. Romans 3:25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, that He might be the, that He might be His right. Because in His forbearance, God has passed over sins that were previously committed. Book of Hebrews to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, he's a just God, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation means a substitute sacrifice. The definition is this, the love of God, satisfying the wrath of God, and releasing the mercy of God. And propitiation is picture of the name of the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. So in 1 John, in this the love of God was manifested to us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, we'd be foolish not to, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, there it is, the propitiation for our sins. And then he says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we should walk worthy of the calling to which we are called. We should walk worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Thus we must examine ourselves at the foot of the cross. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 6, For when we were still without strength, Christ died for the, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 again, much more than having now been justified by his blood, the cross, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I say, keep telling me, keep telling me, keep telling me. The cross, what God got, what Jesus purchased for us. So the cross is everything to the Christian faith. If I can give you a keyword summary, propitiation, salvation, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, glorification. Let me continue. Saved from wrath. Saved by his life. Peace with God. Reconciled to God. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And on and on goes what we have received now because of what Jesus bought for us. The cross. So civil trial number one before Pilate who then sent Jesus to Herod in verse chapter 15. And they bound Jesus, led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, Luke 22, and I'll be giving you just the other accounts to fill in the blanks. In Luke 22, verse 66, it said, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me and let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? He said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Blasphemy. Now, the interesting little thing that's not in, the, in the, what we would read is that at this time the Jews did not have the legal authority to execute someone they judged worthy of death. The power of capital punishment was taken away from the Jews by the Roman government just about the time of Jesus' birth. When this happened in in 4 to 6 AD, the Jews interpreted this as the end of their hope to reign and therefore the end of the kingdom promises. Some of the Jews actually went around in public with sackcloth and ashes mourning over the fact that God had failed to keep his promise. In Genesis we read that promise. Genesis 49:10 as Jacob blessing Judah or through through Jacob. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, Shiloh is a messianic reference. Scepter stands for judicial power. So the Jews interpreted the taking away of their power for capital punishment by the Roman government as taking away the scepter from Judah. So the Messiah had not come. Thus they were mourning because God had failed to keep his promise, which would be something to mourn over. Would you say amen if he didn't? So that's where they're at, that this scepter was taken from Judah. Therefore, they didn't have capital punishment. The Messiah had come, so God promised that would never happen. It happened in their minds. But little did they know that in Nazareth, the Messiah had come. And he's waiting to be revealed to the people. He was growing up, and God will reveal him. But the, 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 the point is that God never fails to keep his promises. Never. Thus, the word of God and the prophetic word, just ignites our faith in what God has promised. And he actually brings it to pass when you think there's no way. And the cross is the pinnacle of that no way. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ that God did that. So the cross proclaims that God always keeps his promise. On the cross, God the Son was sentenced to death because God never fails to keep his promises. So we read in the book of Acts, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He's fulfilling the prophetic words of Messiah. Him, now this is a very interesting verse. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This is of God's doing. And yet man chose... You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. This is a plan of God, but you have an active part in it, and you're accountable for it. Interesting, isn't it? God always keeps his promises. So Pilate asked, verse 2 in Mark 15, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, it is as you say. So the the life of Jesus or the lives of Jesus and Pilate are now colliding. History would be changed forever. Pilate stands as the man with Jesus that now collides in the realm of history. And that's what the cross does. It collides people's lives with Jesus Christ. And so Pilate hated the Jews because they were stubborn, rebellious people. Pilate could be a cold-blooded, cruel, and ruthless man who cared nothing about anyone. Uh, Now, unless, of course, there were a means to achieve his insatiable appetite for power and control. It sounds sort of similar to what we're seeing ourselves. (laughs) Pilate was also a very astute politician who knew how to play the masses. He was willing to yield to popular pressure if and only if it would advance his own agenda. So, this is exactly what happened pilate pilate's political expediency yielded to popular uh, pursuits now jesus was no political threat to rome he took no political stance against rome he said it's as you say yes are you the king? it's as you say the designation is yours you've said it so you say in other words it's as you say it's yes it's true but with a qualification. And that qualification is found in John chapter 18. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you concerning this concerning me? He's really putting him on trial himself. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Something completely different is going on that's veiled from your eye. There's another kingdom, and he is the king. So Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am. That's what you've designated that. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world as king that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is, who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? One of the fabulous little phrases you hear all. What is truth? That's what the world is saying. What is truth? Truth has been lost. God is truth. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I, anyone who is of the truth hears my voice. They understand I am who I say I am. What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, this is fascinating, I find no fault in him at all. In other words, he saw nothing for which to sentence Jesus to death. You see, Jesus' kingship has nothing to do with Rome or Washington, D.C. He is of a whole different realm, a whole different kingdom. Jesus' kingship was that that of him taking the scepter of humility, wearing a crown of thorns, and giving his life a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, you would never even come to mind that that's how the king will reign through the cross. And that's exactly what it would be because there's another kingdom. There are two kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of lie and the kingdom of truth. And Jesus came to reign over the kingdom of truth. The kingdom of light. The kingdom of love. And I'd say, yeah, I want to be a part of that kingdom. Well, Jesus in the cross sentenced, sentenced to death the king of the Jews. And that was devastating to those who saw it. They thought it's over. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Now, what were they accusing Jesus of? Insurrection? Rebellion? He's just a troublemaker. He's going to be a troublemaker for you as long as he lives, Rome. So in, in Luke 23, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a the king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, it's as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in him, in this man. But when they were more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now in Mark, in Mark chapter 15, I hope you're following, in, in verse 3, it says there, he answered nothing. It goes on, verse 4. Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. Verse 5, but Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. You getting a feel for the trial here? Jesus standing? You see, Jesus answered nothing with a defense, without a defense. The law favored the accusers. But Jesus has nothing to defend. Pilate marveled, I believe, at the serenity of Jesus as he stood before him, soon to, be cap- soon to be sentenced to death. Usually men would be groveling on their faces before him, desperately seeking to save their lives. Not Jesus. He said he came to give his life. And he stands in this whole realm and all this stuff going on in, in peace, in doing what he knew he had to do. Willingly did. It's incredible. After scourging Jesus to try to satisfy the people in hopes that they would then he could release Jesus. That's what he wanted to do. In John chapter 19 it says then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns on the purple and the purple robe and Pilate said to him behold the man. In the supernatural, Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels. In the natural, Jesus could have persuaded Pilate to release him. Not only was Jesus silent, so was heaven. There were no legion of angels. There were no heavenly power displays. There was no voice from heaven. There was only the voice of Pilate saying, behold the man. And we get this same behold right from the start of our Savior's life. When Simeon took little eight-day-old Jesus up in his arms, in Luke chapter 2, it says, behold, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel. This child, behold this child. When Jesus first started his public ministry, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold. When Jesus was sentenced to death, Pilate said, Behold the man. In 1 Timothy, you see the cross sentenced to death, the man, Christ Jesus. And in 1 Timothy, it says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the, and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in duty, the man, our substitute sacrifice. When Jesus comes again, you see the cross sentenced to death of the man, Christ Jesus, who is alive forevermore. Say amen. Sentenced to death, yes, but he is alive forevermore. So when he comes again, there will be no question about it. Because we read in Revelation, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, all those who pierced him and will mourn for him. When he comes again, there will be no question, he is risen forever. That's my king. That's my savior. And so, as he's as John's receiving this revelation, there is Jesus standing before him. He turned to see the voice that spoke. He said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and behold, I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the, about the feet with a golden band. His head was and hair were white like wool, and as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. He's seeing Jesus in glory. His feet were like fine brass, that refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth and a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. It says, and when I saw him, I fell on my feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead forever. And behold, I am alive forever. There's the behold. When he comes again, he will be with us forever. In Revelation again, behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be there with them and be their God when he comes again. When he comes again, he will make all things new. Revelation again, 21, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And as we're waiting for Jesus to come again in Revelation 22:7, 7, behold, I'm coming quickly. And he says, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's our king, who was sentenced to death by Pilate. So civil trial number two, before Herod, who then sent Jesus back to Pilate. Now only Luke records this second civil trial. So in Luke chapter 23, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked him, It asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. So the cross sentenced to death these worldly powers that are opposed to him. The cross makes Jesus a hot potato. None of these guys want to deal with it. The most powerful people in the world do not want to deal with a risen Savior, a crucified Savior. The power-hungry egos egos always collide with man-made authorities. The ultimate collision, we read in, in Revelation again, the sixth seal of God's judgment, says in verse 15, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for, great, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You see, he wins, Jesus. So as we're talking about the cross, we really have to see, behold, these things that come with the cross following with Jesus. So it says in Luke again, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. It's like like Jesus is a a traveling circus. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. When I think of this, I think, you know, the cross sentences us to death. Any thought that Jesus lived to show off his power. That somehow Jesus needed the affirmation of people. As though he needed anything. He gives life to all. He gives breath to all things. Jesus. He's not trying to show off. And he won't do it. He's not sort of, I, I need you to affirm. Ooh, I need the woos and the wows. Nothing like that. The cross speaks violently against that. And yet, as he's handed over to Herod, Herod, in all of his sloppiness and corruptness, is hope. I hope I can see a miracle. In Luke again, and the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously. They had been at enmity with each other. You know, the the cross makes for strange bedfellows. That word bedfellows is an old 17th century saying that a difficult situation forces one to associate with a person they would not normally have anything to do with. That's exactly what's happening the cross. The cross sentences to death all ungodly alliances. It may not just be with people. There are many alliances that are ungodly. Sexual immorality. And on goes the list. The civil trial, number three, before Piety, who then sentences Jesus to death, begins in verse six. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to release in one prisoner to them whoever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, verse seven, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them, but Pilate answered them saying, "Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?" For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate was no fool. He may be cruel and callous, but he was no fool. He knew that this was a politically explosive situation that he had to deal with and had to do it wisely. The scene is intense as Pilate tries to free Jesus. Barabbas was a terrorist. He was, the re- he was a real political threat to Rome, not Jesus. He was an enemy of Rome, Barabbas. Pilate was not fooled. He knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate saw right through their empty charges. He knew envy had eaten them up. He knew that they did not have the, that they were it bugged them that they didn't have the authority that Jesus had. They didn't have the following that Jesus They didn't have the responses to them that the persuasion that Jesus had with people. And they hated him the more and more because of it. That's what that's what power does. It corrupts even more corruptly. So it says there when they they attached you know they attached the temple guard to take Jesus for them these Chief priests. And we read in John the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? How come he didn't bring him to us? The officers answered said, No man ever spoke like this man. So they go to get him and again and again, these religious hypocrites tried to trap Jesus, but never could. And I can see him going, Arr. In their envy. And Pilate knew that. He saw that. You see, the cross makes it impossible for anyone to sidestep the authority of Jesus Christ. There is no getting around him. He is God, the ultimate authority, the ultimate, if you will, persuader. So that the chief priest stirred up the crowd so he could, this is verse 11, so he should rather release Barabbas to them. So here they're stirring him up. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Here's the question everyone must answer for themselves, including Pilate. What will you do with Jesus? See, that's the cross. What will you do with him? Pilate had to make his own decision about him. And so do I and so do you. Once made, hallelujah, what a savior. Have you made that decision? That's the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus said, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Divides. The cross makes it impossible to bypass making a decision concerning the person of Jesus Christ. There is no getting around him. To not decide is to already have decided. What will you do? You, you can't be neutral. To not decide is to already decide. In John chapter 3, where we're, we know this verse by heart many times over. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might believe. But... He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, seeing so he has not believing the only begotten Son of God. You're sin, you're condemned, you're judged. The only solution is putting faith in Jesus Christ, who has demonstrated and proved to be the Son of God without question. And so he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 5, 24, most assured I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Back in Mark chapter 15, final couple verses. So they cried against, crucify him, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. You see, all these things demand a response for all of us. And we're going to do that in communion. Maybe the guys can go back and, and uh, prepare to serve communion. The worship team can come out. He calls for response as the body of Christ, and then also, if you're here this morning, as a non-believer who's hearing the gospel, there's only one way by which you can have your sins forgiven. One way which you, you, you can be saved from death and hell is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the suffering servant, the one who died on the cross for our sin, the one who is the propitiation for you, for me. And so in Corinthians we read, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take ye, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what we're going to do this morning. Again, he goes on. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often, Paul's now commentary, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the cross until he comes. Communion is a sacred time where every Christian remembers that what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is everything. It's everything. Propitiation, salvation, sanctification, justification, all of it. It's the cross. And that's remembering in the cross. Remembering him, as he said, proclaiming the cross. It's a sacred time where the cross becomes everything for us as we bow before the Lord in our hearts. Were it not for the cross of Jesus, all of us would be hopelessly lost now and forever. We proclaim in community that Jesus died for every one of us. That all together we are the body of Christ. And every one of us is just as important as the next. We proclaim that Jesus is coming again. And we eagerly wait for his arrival or our departure. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of you. You don't get it. Understand what we're doing. This sacred time as the body of Christ in remembering Jesus, in proclaiming the cross, and everything that that means to us, and then applying the blood to my life. Have you made your decision for Jesus would be the first question. If not, and you're not ready to do that, then let the cup pass you by, and let these emblems pass you by, because what we're doing is we're proclaiming his death. We're proclaiming the fact that we need a Savior. That Jesus is who, he, that he, he's the Savior. And so to take that is to say, I need a Savior, but I'm not willing to repent. I'm not really re- willing to do what the gospel gives to me as being saved, just let it pass you by. And so, some of the questions that came to come to my mind: Have you made your decision for Jesus? Are you still trying to sidestep that? And that, if having made that, here's the first one in my mind: Am I giving thanks to God for this incredible thing called salvation? Am I thankful right off, the, right off the, the start? What Jesus did for me. And thanking him. That's what I'll enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Another question. Are you walking worthy of the calling to which you were called? As a believer. Are you walking worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory? Examine yourselves. Paul told the Corinthians. Are you trusting God to keep his promises in your life? Are you trusting him? Or are you doubting God? This is the time to bring that to the cross and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Is your life in any way colliding with the authority of Jesus Christ? Does Jesus have the preeminence in your life? And I hope as you're receiving the emblems that that in itself is the hope we have and the only hope we have, that Jesus is the answer and I'm coming back to him in prayer and faith and confessing these things and saying, Lord,